Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to TCK Care, the podcast. This is your host, Stephen Black, and joining us today is a fellow West Africa MK, Tabby Eckert. Tabby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Good to have you. And, um, you know, our introductory question, of course, because it's a TCK podcast, has to be the million-dollar TCK question, the favorite question of every TCK everywhere, which is, <laughs> where are you from, Tabby? Um, so I usually answer that by saying that my parents currently live in Pennsylvania. So uh, that's where I'm currently from. Um, but I grew up in West Africa in Niger Republic. Nice. Very cool. That That's spoken like an expert TCK who has handled that question many times and has a very <laughs> simple answer to a possibly <laughs> complex and difficult and possibly painful question. So well done. Thank you. So, Tabby, I wanted to ask, uh, how long were you in Niger for? If you count furloughs, we were there for 16 years. Okay, sure. You can count them or not count them. You know, it's like, we'll, we'll be non-judgmental. <laughs> so we we called West Africa home for 16 years, and three of those were furloughs. Okay, 16 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good long run. Yeah. Did you... Did you pick up other? Did you pick up other languages while you were over there? Um, I pick up some French um, and some Hausa, a little bit of Fofolde because my parents worked with the Fulani tribe but lived in a Hausa town, um, and so what I primarily okay. picked up was French and Hausa. Um, but my parents did try really hard to teach us Fofolde. They even tried requiring us to use it at the dinner table. Mm. Um, for a while and that flopped because we just we kids kind of communicated telepathically um, <laughs> so but i did learn like i learned enough to understand my dad's sermons in that language oh that's very cool that this i just gotta say this has been a pretty interesting connection in that tabby had uh, has listened to some of the podcast and we were emailing back and forth and we had a lot of connections in that we both uh, we were both a part of Hausa culture and Fulbe culture. And there was uh, this one place in Nigeria where you had mentioned, Tabby, was it Miengo? Yeah, my family vacationed in um, Miengo a few times when I was growing up. Okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And so Tabby, Tabby and I have actually had like a lot of overlap, which is kind of funny. <laughs> and now, of course, we're just meeting now um, long distance through the podcast. So that's cool. Yeah. If you're a TCK looking for looking to build other TCK connections, I highly recommend starting a podcast because you <laughs> get to meet all kinds of cool people in different places of the world. Seems like it's worked pretty well for you. Yeah, it really has. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tabby... Uh, you know, I realize this is a difficult question in that it's um, there's so much that could go into it, but I'll just ask it anyways, and you can answer this however you want, um, with as much or as little time as you want. What was your favorite part of living overseas and being growing up as a TCK? Hmm. You know, I think I tend to answer that question a little differently depending on like where I am or what's going on in my life or or what my perspective is. Um. I think at this point, like with it being about a decade in retrospect, um, some of my favorite memories of Niger and of my life overseas are, um, I think, elements of daily life. I I really miss 
the sky without light pollution that I grew up with because mm. my town didn't have electricity. Mm -hmm. um, and I would lie on my mattress out on the front porch where we slept because we you know, couldn't run our ceiling fans uh, and look up through my mosquito night mosquito net at like this like deep velvet sky with bright 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 stars stars and um when the dust storms came in you could you could see them rolling you could watch them eat the sky up from the east and um you could see the thunder well not see the thunder you could hear the thunder and then you'd start to see the lightning kind of cracking that dust storm coming in and it just um it was just astounding. It's something that I've never seen again and that I, I miss, especially when I see a night sky. Um, and I think, um, I think a lot of collectivistic cultures are similar in that they don't mind noise as much, especially if like not everybody has radios. So a lot of the merchants in the marketplace would uh, put their radios on the loudspeaker at night. Um, and I remember a few years where hits by Mariah Carey and Celine Dion were really popular. And so I would often fall asleep listening to like, my heart will go on, <laughs> um, which was never a movie I was super into. My parents actually didn't allow me to see it. So I watched it in college with friends. Um, but it is a very like familiar and soothing piece for me now because that's what I associate it with. <laughs> um, and I think that those are some of my favorite memories of just um, it being a part of my normal life to be surrounded by um, so much beauty and like associate music that probably has totally different like feelings and connotations to other people um, with kind of, I don't know, vicariously feeling a part of the village because I was sharing what they were listening to. Um, I also really miss guavas that aren't green. I miss... Um, I miss the sand, you know, the way it coats your feet and then it feels so good to wash it off. There's nothing like it, not even here in the States that I've found so far. And hmm. those were really like good feelings in my childhood. And I think back on like a lot of things that felt really good um, in those moments. Um, I miss the missionary kids that I grew up with. I really enjoyed the camaraderie I had with some of the other missionary kids who lived a little more remotely, like my family did and were involved in um, working with the same tribe or with tribes more remote from the larger our parents would get together every few months. Um, and while it was hard to go for so long and um, being away from other kids with like the same experience, um, our time together was really fun. We played a lot of outdoor games and made up a lot of our own games with like sticks and seeds and whatever we had on hand. And I think that that's like a really healthy way to be a child is just not to have an option not to explore. Hmm. Um, and I, I remember that even though my life felt really protected because my parents were very protective on many levels, um, when I did get away from their surveillance for a while because they felt confident that we couldn't get into too much trouble on the mission compounds while they were in meetings, um, it, was, it was just a really glorious <laughs> time to uh, climb trees and dig under boulders and do stuff that you know, wasn't morally bad, but they probably wouldn't have let us do if they'd known. And um, <laughs> I look back on those things about my childhood and just feel like it was, those were moments where it was a real childhood and it was a very good um, childhood. So I think that those are a lot of the things that I, like at this point in my life, 
feel were were positives about the MK experience. Um, there were a lot of things that I take for granted or that have just become me. Um, like the other day I posted a picture on social media where a friend of mine and I had gone swimming in a river nearby and um, I'm many states away from where I normally am, but I don't tend to stay in the same place for very long or for sustained periods of time. So someone commented on the picture and said, well, you really get around, don't you? Yeah. Um, and I, <laughs> I messaged back and was like, yeah, I, I just haven't gotten around to settling down yet. Um, which I think is true. And that's also a part of my life that, you know, for a while I really resented that my parents lifestyle kept me from building the consistent peer circle that I saw my friends having and um, resented how it made me feel that I was growing up in a way that would never allow me to like have a perspective that seemed normative or just kind of slip into the waters of the culture I was in and, and belong there. But, um, but now I, I really am learning to enjoy living in the mind and perspective that I have. And um, even though it's a very expensive, I think, gift to receive on some levels, it's something that I am learning to treasure. So, hmm. yeah, I guess that would kind of be the, the skim on it. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love I love your um, sensory description of growing up in Africa and like, you know, the, um, the stars <laughs> in the sky at night and how how rich the sky can look and stuff. I have to imagine that there are other TCKs like me who are hearing this and going, oh my goodness, yes, that resonates with me so much because <laughs> I get what that means. And like, you don't, I tend to not really think about that as much as when, you know, I'm in a conversation like this and someone brings it up or I go out into the country and I'm like, oh yeah, the sky, it's really beautiful at night when there isn't, when there's no light pollution. Um, and then you're talking about the sand and just like the childish things you do, like, you know, climbing on trees and being a little bit dangerous sometimes and exploring and having fun. <laughs> like that's all just such a vivid description of some of the, some of the beautiful aspects of a TCK, uh, TCK experience that's really unique. Yeah. I think that, um, I, I think I've found, um, that grief, um, you know, which I'm sure we'll get into with this discussion, but grief so much can describe our experience. Um, and grief is really, like it's a great number. Um, it takes away not just our awareness, our experience of now, mm. but it blunts our experience of memory. And um, I think I've been trying really hard to go back and like, and when I'm reminded of something to immerse myself in, in what it was like, not just to, to feel the, the grief of not having it anymore. Um, because because even though it's gone, it is, it was still mine mm -hmm. then and it still belongs in me now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I have every right in this world and maybe even more <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to, to enjoy it, to really savor what's left of it. Um, so yeah, I think I've been trying as I get older to, to mm. remember that more keenly. Yeah. Yeah, grief is definitely an interesting thing, and I I hear you saying, you know, that um, grief is a grief is the great number, and um, that it really can take away from your uh, presence in the moment now. 
um, and can, you know, sometimes uh, compromise your memories of the past. And just as you were thinking, I was, or as you were talking, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how oftentimes grief and loss is such a a unique and um, essential part of the story that it's almost hard to put a positive spin on things. And so when people are talking about, you know, relational difficulties and uh, traumatic experiences and stuff, I can I can chime in with, oh, yeah, I understand that. I get that. I get what you mean. A lot of my childhood has you know grief in it. But if I'm really getting into getting into the story, then I have to ask my listeners to be dialectic with me and like hold both of these things as true that like there's there's a lot of grief in my life and there's a lot of sadness that I still live with. But also like my life is beautiful, you know, and my childhood was beautiful, too. Mm -hmm. And um, I definitely hear you talking about that. Obviously, like these memories, like you said, they still really belong to you and they resonate with you and they're a part of who you are, even if you can't actively uh, experience them now, like Mm -hmm. you still hold those things and they've still they still they still shape who you are as a person. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And if uh, going off of that, if you don't mind my asking, I was just going to, I was curious, what would you say Mm. has been some of the hardest parts of being a TCK and growing up overseas? Oh, I want to, I want to answer this honestly. Um, And I also want to kind of preface it with two things. And the first is that I know that what we remember is shaped by where we are emotionally and in our lives. Yeah. Um, I know that our retrospection is maybe (laughs) 50-50, especially when our current emotions are involved Mm -hmm. in it. Um, And so, like, as I answer that question, I do want to say that like this is going to be my experience as I know it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably, it's never going to be the full truth of my experience because it won't be how I knew it then or how I'm going to know it later. Um, and also, um, like you said earlier, a TCK's wellness um, has so much to do with how their parents are um, doing and, it doesn't stop. There's never a time when our wellness stops having to do with how our parents are, I think. Sure. Um, and I'm a firstborn. So <laughs> my parents, not that they care less about another child, but they care. I think, I think I don't have a first child yet. I think that parents that care really intensely without the perspective of being a parent about the first child. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that comes with its benefits and its costs. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about this, I want to say that I love my parents deeply. I know that they love me more than their lives and that it is an honor for me that when they made mistakes, they made them out of love. Um, because lots of people make mistakes out of selfishness. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's so true. Your question was like, what were some of the things that were hard about being an MK, I mm-hmm. guess? Um, and I think that the real hardness of being an MK kicked in in my adolescence, which is, that makes sense, right? Um, 
I there was there was always this overhangingness of loss in my life. Um, I'm a pretty relational girl, and I remember vaguely remember my grandma and my aunt saying goodbye to me when I was turning two. And I it's it's odd that I have a few memories from when I was two, but I think like the volume of us moving and how many new things I was learning and like how curious I've always been. I think that probably played into it. So one of the first things I remember um, is like my grandma and my aunt packing me in the car and stuffing me with apricots because like they just, I think they so badly just wanted to give me more of their love. (laughs) So of course they stuffed my face. I threw up on the plane. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) but, um, I always, I lived my life around the rhythm of when we were going to leave or leave again. Um, So I I don't think I ever had a real picture of my life as a single trajectory, not interrupted by major change um, until I was in my 20s. Um, And I saw my relationships the same way. I a good friend of mine last year that it is still my first thought when I meet a person to wonder when they're going to leave, not in a, how am I going to hold on to you way, but kind of more gauging, what can I invest in this? Um, and then what do I just need to accept as a loss right now? Um, and so there was this overhanging sense of a deadline on all of my relationships or, or an ending point that I think was hard. Um, and so because I like really love my family, I love my people and I, um, lived with for a long time, just a fear of who I was going to lose. Um, I really desperately always wanted to feel like my parents were happy with me. Um, and I, I felt like any type of rejection from the people we were with pretty intensely. Um, I felt anything I could have interpreted as rejection on our furloughs the same way. Um, and I, I think that um, a lot of the conflict I had with my parents came from much I was struggling with those kinds of losses and those fears while they, having grown up both in pretty stable living, like, you know, my dad, my dad's family has not moved in 400 years Mm. (laughs) and my mom's family are immigrants, but they have a very strong community that they all knew of each other. Mm Um, so I don't think either of my parents understood that I, what I couldn't articulate, which was I'm struggling with every decision you make that I feel sets me on a relationship countdown again. Hmm. Um, and, and I think we also got very enmeshed as a family. We lived remotely. We were three hours drive from the next missionary family. My parents chose to homeschool, which I think that for most of my life, that was a really good decision. And they put so much into it. They tried so hard and they did a very good job with my siblings. Not one be like, oh, they educated me really well, <laughs> but they, they did their job and more as teachers. When I hit the U S education system, I was more than ready to go. Mm. Um, I was really excited and I hopped right into it and, and it just flew. Um, but I think that, yeah, the fact that we were isolated on so many levels, my parents met up with coworkers every three months and it was really just me and my family and the local people um, kind of already set us on a course to 
um, well, for if my parent, how do I put this? It basically set things up so that if my parents made a mistake, there was nothing to absorb the the fallout from it. You know, like if you have a strong supportive social system and your parents make a mistake, maybe your grandparents step in and say, hey, <laughs> or your aunt says, you know, I went through that too. Or you have friends that you go hang out with or like there's there's somewhere to absorb the shock, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. hopefully in a healthy support system. Yeah. But for us, it was just mom and dad, my siblings, occasionally seeing another missionary family. Um, some of my pen pals, I wrote epistles to pen pals um, and the local people who for the first half of our time overseas were quite antagonistic um, or just curious and didn't know how to be gentle with little kids. We got licked and pinched and scratched and had our hair pulled and people threw rocks and rubber bands. And there was a lot of animosity toward French colonialism that had not been overcome yet because our town was so remote that we were the first white children they'd ever seen. Um, but they just, you know, seen French colonial generals and lieutenants and, um, and then there's just like, you know, the inherent curiosity people have about a thing that is different where they drive home to you how different you are because they're treating you like a, a strange thing. Um, and I think that like my parents being so isolated and being so heavily under pressure, having taken on a really difficult assignment that they did do a very good job with. Um, they first of all, didn't really have the bandwidth, um, to see, Uh, how this could affect us. Um, They also didn't have the perspective. There was no one else around to say, I think this kid needs, you know, something different. Um, And they had seven kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So they tried really hard and they ended up um, relying really heavily on focus on the family um, and eventually on Michael and Debbie Pearl James and Stacey McDonald, Doug Phillips, Joshua Harris, Greg Harris. Do you see where I'm going? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I do also want to say that I believe that all of those people really wanted to love God. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that they knew God. And unfortunately, you know how the Bible says that when a person is in a position of leadership, they will be judged more harshly. Um, and I think it also means their mistakes will cost more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, the result of all of that was that my parents were very authoritarian for a while. Um, and they had a one size fits all approach for most of us. I will say that they tried to temper it with like what our personalities were, but there were strict bedtimes, strict meal times, strict Bible times, strict school times, strict chore times. Um, And in the middle of this, you have my mom, who's very, very, very loving and very warm and affectionate and like probably is the reason that we are as okay as we are after the ATI and some of the other dabblings they did in in uber conservative, slightly gone wrong theology. Um, But my dad is also a perfectionist. And so there was a very heavy emphasis on getting it right Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that I think I still deal with. Um, so that ended up in my teens, kind of leaving me in a position where I felt very alone with the need to be a good example to my siblings, to my parents, um, 
ministry to their supporters um, and feeling like there was nowhere that I could go and say um, that I felt hollow and that I didn't feel like God loved me very much and that I didn't know how I was supposed to survive this life of like never being adequate and always being alone. Um, or at least, you know, when you're, when you're a teenager, everything is all in superlatives. And <laughs> I, I think I look back at it. I'm like, it was, it was not that bad. <laughs> it was really not all extremes and all terrible, sure. but as a teenager, that's your experience of life. Right. Um, so that kind of led to like a very rocky couple of years at the end of my parents' ministry. Now they chose to move back to the States when I was 18 because they wanted to be near me for college. They, you know, realized that I had not lived in the U.S. and it was going to be a transition. And I am thankful that they were willing to make that change. Mm -hmm. But a couple of years before we moved back were just a lot of me wanting to butt heads with them and not feeling that it was safe because I felt I had a responsibility to um, promote as much peace in our house for my siblings as I could. Um, and I projected a lot of that onto God. Um, and then I think we also, we continued to isolate once we moved to the States. My parents moved several States away from family. My dad was pursuing what he thought was going to be the best way to support our family. Um, and it ended up just making it so that we didn't know anybody mm. um, where in the state that we lived in. Mm -hmm. um, and when I hit college, I had this like petrifying feeling that I wasn't going to make lasting relationships in college um, and that I was too abnormal to be accepted. So it took me a good number of years to, um, to believe that there was going to be a time or a place in my life when I would feel okay. Um, and I did, I did like have some really good friendships in college. I ended up going in for counseling for something unrelated to a lot of my real issues. And that was when we started digging into where this was coming from. I had never been able to say how conflicted I felt about my parents' theology before. Um, and so it was, a really new experience to have the freedom to start to work that out. Um, my parents were really gracious about this too. I think that they had never even imagined that what they were teaching could be wrong. <laughs> right. um, and they were, they were shocked and kind of thrown off guard, but, and my mom cried a lot because she felt so bad and I still feel horrible about it. Um, but they took it and my mom tried really hard to, like look for who is God really and how do we really show the love of God in a way that is independent of every culture, including the, the culture. Cause it is a culture, the culture we endorse to try to raise our kids. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, we had to, we had to shrug off a lot of things as a family that we had picked up from living in a Muslim context too. But I feel like that's another discussion. Um, and I really had to learn a new way of looking at the world so that I could, let go of Africa and kind of, and build a new life as an adult in another country. So to sum all that up, I, I think that the things that were hardest about being a missionary kid were my parents accidentally building themselves into a corner and the mission board not knowing hmm. and us being so idolized by the church that there wasn't ever a time or a place for for us to be able to work out how hollow it can make you to be 
a missionary or a missionary family. Sounds like you had a fair amount of like the, just the feeling of isolation on both sides of like um, going over and then being al- you know alone in that village, um, sort of uh, like you know aware of other missionaries around you, but not not having them in your life so much that there's like you were talking about having the buffer when things go wrong you can kind of go somewhere else and process outside of your family or when you're feeling a lot of stress or pressure you can go somewhere else and talk about it so you didn't really have that and so there was a sense of isolation there and then you continued to feel isolation when you moved back to the states and like you're talking about how you didn't feel that um you could really be you could really be loved that you were such an anomaly that you were always going to be on the outside or whatever mm-hmm. wow the sounds that sounds really intense. Like I can see the I can see the beauty in it, but there's so much intensity there. And you know, having listened to your it was really intense. Yeah, and having <laughs> listened to your story, like I, you know, I have a lot of respect for how you address your parents, and that you said that you know you really love your parents, and you see that the mistakes they made for you were mistakes that they made out of love. And um, I hope that's true for all of us that the mistakes that we make will be out of love, and that are you know when when my children go to counseling to talk about me it will be to process the <laughs> the love the mistakes that I lovingly made in their lives in an effort to do the best that I could with what I had which I think is what all parents do you know they like they do the best with what they have um, and sometimes we put ourselves in a place where we don't have all that we need to be um, the perfect parent but you do the best you do the best that you can mm-hmm. and I was listening to, uh, someone recently told me that all parents will be good parents if given the opportunity, and I want to believe that's mm-hmm. I want to believe that's true. I'm I'm really thankful that my parents, especially my mom, um, really chose to um, to listen to me and to make room in their lives for my perspective. Right. Um, even yeah. if it cost them how they saw what they had done. Mm-hmm. Um, Because I think when you invest so much in a thing and really believe in it and you sacrifice for it, Mm -hmm. it can be crushing to to see that it wasn't all good Mm. um, and that you you missed the mark um, on some of those things that you tried so hard for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, And I think also that seeing my mom receive that with humility and just so much love, um, also kind of in, in like it created a cycle for me of being able to believe that God was like that. And because I could believe that God was like that, I was also able to receive God's love and have more forgiveness for my mom. So I think that like, that's something that I, I have seen the Holy spirit really do. Um, to use humility to make room for you to have more humility and more love. Um, and I, I'm also really thankful for that. Hmm. I was going to say for all the, um, for all that you've talked about, uh, the struggle of um, projecting things at God and that sort of thing. It sounds like um, perhaps you've uh, moved past that a little bit and have a better, re- better relationship with God now. Do you think that's true? <laughs> Definitely. I, I tell people I've never been this well with God before, mm-hmm. um, as I am now. And I, you know, hope that that continues to be the rest of my life, or at least, you know, the overall trajectory, because I know yeah. our 
our lives are basically scatter plots of where we are on any given day. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I accepted Christ when I was four and I did it because I trusted my parents um, that, you know, I trusted what they said about Jesus. And I definitely wanted to be on board with that if they were right. But also because I was afraid because I had just figured out that the little girl that lived on our missionary compound before me died when she was four. Mm. Um, and actually the two little girls that lived on our missionary compound or two of maybe the three that lived there um, died when they were four, like in a row. And um, I don't, I don't know how much of that I put together, but I remember reading the tombstone and like figuring out what death was and being really upset and putting together that when my parents said that Jesus came to save us and give us eternal life, then this was like, this was how you didn't have to be afraid of dying, which is true. It's as true now as it was then. But, you know, I'd love to say, oh, I just fell in love with Jesus. He was so wonderful. And the reality is, no, I, my parents were good. So I believe that God could be good. And I was afraid. So I went to Jesus. (laughs) Um, But as I got older um, and as my parents got more entangled in just how hard life is and what you do about that. Um, I also felt more and more distant from God. And I remember being like eight or nine and having this dream where Jesus came to our house. And I actually hid in my dream because I was sure that he would be ashamed to see me. Um, And I think that I really, I really carried that subconsciously for a lot of my life. Um, Until I was 25 or 26, I just had this like deep feeling that I was never good enough for God um that if I was good enough for God his people would accept me um Mm. that if I was good enough for God he would make even not his people (laughs) accept me and um that if I was good enough for God I would be perfect in every way that I thought I needed to be perfect in I had a really convoluted theology around the whole be perfect as your father is perfect first sure yeah very very wrong yeah um so I, I took that with me for a really long time and ultimately brewed up so much anger at God um, that eventually, you know, with life circumstances and stuff that happened in my 20s, I just snapped. Um, and all of a sudden, what I wanted to say was maybe it was never me that was inadequate. Maybe it was God. And mm. I don't think I had realized that I felt inadequate to God. Like I'd never let myself say that up until then. But when all I wanted to say and all I like just wanted to resonate was that God was inadequate for me. Um, like that was, it didn't make me feel any of the things I feel about it now, but it was, I think it tells me how much um, of all of that pressure I just kind of turned inward. Um, and you know, my mom was working through a lot of things and, and learning a lot more humility and love at that time in my life. And watching her, I was able to slowly start to change my concept of God to believe that he was tender, like my mom was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I came back to Jesus because my mom was good. And so it's funny, you know, that like in the beginning... Yeah, that's why I was willing to come to him. And and then again, 20 some years later, watching my mom apologize <laughs> was what made me willing to come back to him. Yeah. Um, and I found a different God than 
yeah, the God I had been with for most of my life was not, he was inadequate because that wasn't God. Um, and I think I've, the past few years, um, I've found a God that like really deeply grieves that I spent that much of my life with a God concept that was so cruel. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, offers me the freedom to live with a God that is so kind. Mm. Um, so I, I definitely have had a lot of healing. Um, and like, if there was anything that I needed to have faith, it's honestly just looking at God's ability to remake my view of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool that, you know, God used the humility in your mother to um, to show you something about himself and his character. And like, as a parent, I never, mm-hmm. ever, ever want to make a mistake, ever. So I, I guess maybe mm-hmm. that's my own fault of perfection, <laughs> uh, bent towards perfection, whatever. And yet, um, it's really interesting thinking about how, from the perspective of a parent, it's comforting to hear that like, making mistakes doesn't have to be the end of the world. You know, you can actually like use those as an opportunity to model humility and to uh, restore relationships and um, a whole bunch of good things too. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And then Tabby, as, uh, as we're coming to the end of our time here, I just wanted to ask, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time just processing your story and thinking about all the different um, components of your story and who that made, made you now. And it's really cool to listen to. And I just want to ask, you know, if you have any advice for uh, perhaps other TCKs out there or perhaps other TCK families, parents, um, caregivers of TCKs, what would you say um, makes for a spiritually, emotionally healthy TCK experience? I think that (laughs) first, I think you really have to reject the idea that you can get it perfect. Mm. (laughs) We can't, we just can't. And there are going to be mistakes and retrospect is one of the cruelest judges in this world. And there's going to be a lot of retrospect that is not kind to us. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think not coming to a lackadaisical place where you're like, eh, whatever, it doesn't matter, or or a reckless place where, oh, well, I'll probably go wrong anyway, so I'll just do this. Um, but a place where we hold on even to our own rightness with, with loose hands, you know, mm-hmm. where, where we say, I have been as prayerful as I can be, and I am trying so hard to be thoughtful, and I'm calling in all the accountability I can get and all the advice I can get. Um, and I am listening. I'm, I'm malleable here. Um, but I do know a couple things I really believe. You know, I do know that God cares about our hearts. I do know that I that my love is invested here. I do know that I'm ready to sacrifice to get it right and that this is a process. <laughs> this mm-hmm. isn't we get it one day and we we apply it forever. This is an organism and we're growing together. Um, right. I think that's really important. And I think having grace with ourselves, you know, to not be afraid of failure, because I really think our fear um, of going wrong keeps us from going right a lot of the time. 
Um, so to say, you know, the worst thing is not that I fail. The worst thing is that I won't acknowledge it when I do, um, that I won't change when I do. That's really big. Um, so yeah, not letting the fear of failure keep us from confronting mistakes for what they are as soon as we can. Um, and, and just really knowing who we believe in and what we believe in, who we love and, and what we're willing to lay our lives down for or not. I was talking with my sister recently about a boy she's dating. And I was like, look, I, all I really want to know is what would he die for? You know, like, what would he, what would he be willing to go to war for? <laughs> mm. And hopefully of those three or four things, because he should not be a person that is willing to die and go to war often <laughs> <laughs> of those three or four things is one of them. Jesus is that the biggest thing um, because she loves Jesus. Now I think like there are many people that have really fulfilling lives. Believe but you just have to know like, what are the really, really, really big universal important things that are not going to change. They're not going to shift. They're not going to go away. They're just going to learn another language, no matter where you go or who else you become. Hmm. Um, and then, and then holding on to those, you know, that we have this certainty, this confidence that um, we can hold on to. I'm an ICU nurse. And so we run into these situations where we really don't know what's going on, but it's bad. You know, <laughs> we don't know why that is suddenly escalating or why they stopped breathing, but that's not good. Um, when I would orient new nurses, I would say, look, the thing you hold on to is what do you know for sure when you run into a situation where you are about to feel like you're drowning with what you don't know? What you know for sure is you are board certified as a nurse. You can do this job. You know for sure that you can tell vitals. You can tell if your patient is coding or not. <laughs> you oh know goodness. for sure that you know the doctor's number. You know who to call. Yeah. And you know for sure that while you're orienting with me, we will do this together. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you get scared or overwhelmed and you just don't know what's going on, go back to the last thing you knew for sure and start there. And I think that like, mm -hmm. that's what I would say, like, like know who you have in your pocket, know who you can call, know who will give you advice, know where you will turn when you need to cry or when you're excited and you need to share it. Know what is your family or your personal line in the sand that you will not cross? Your child develops anorexia. Will you stay on the mission field? Mm. Um, will you hold yourself accountable to your wife says you need counseling? Will you step off the field and get it? Like lines in the sand, I think are so important. And then what will you not question? You can question what Jesus is doing right now and and why he's doing it and what he's trying to do and what his words really meant. But you never ever question that Jesus is God and he is with you and he loves you. Like, so that's, I guess that would be, I think just if, if you're going into missions or even if you're not, <laughs> um, just, just know really well what is in place that will not change for you and, and what is in place to protect you when other things change to help you change with them the way that you need to. Hmm. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like you're saying essentially like know yourself, right? And that's not only like mm -hmm. yourself and your opin opinions, beliefs, values, that sort of thing, but also yourself in the context of um, your religion and your community and your family, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff as well. And that's that's beautiful advice. I love it. Thank you, Tabby. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for taking the time to come and share your story so openly and honestly. It's a beautiful story, and you've obviously, like I said, done a lot of work in just processing your own experience. Yeah, thank you for a chance to chat, and um, it's really been a pleasure. 
You've been listening to TCK Care, the podcast with me, Stephen Black, as we share stories and strategies for supporting TCKs. Hosting and producing TCK Care, the podcast is a part of my ministry, which is made possible by the generous support of my financial partners. If you would like to make a one-time or recurring pledge, please go to tckcare.com slash give. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate it on your favorite podcast app, and stay tuned for more TCK Care coming up next week. <laughs>